This is Jan Cox, talk number 2,582, recorded September 23rd, 2000. So many of you last night seem to have latched on to something. I'm just going ahead and say a few, something else about what I was talking about, about the nothingness. I didn't point this out once I got down to the punchline last night about having the mind look over its shoulder. And I more or less left it, if you recall, and I was saying from one quite valid view, not just a theory, I always call it a model because it's simply one way of looking at it. But I was pointing out that over the shoulder, if you get the mind to look, there is nothing. And it's that very thing that is never considered as a possibility of looking as to where is the innate, apparently, template for language. Uh, as much as they know now about the brain, down to, in many cases, down to the single neuron level insofar as the kinds of manual, physical, physiological activity that the brain's involved with certain areas that they still, <clears throat> that the more they know, the, the, the less it appears by their own admission that they can locate the seat of thought. Because some of you know, I didn't point out last night, but 20 years ago even, easily in my lifetime, it was just considered it was just sort of a throwaway line that conscious thought originates in the frontal lobes no one that i know that i'm aware of now still believes that in other words the more that they have mapped and pinpointed specific physical functions operations of the human organism and they can pinpoint where the locale the point of origin in the brain is, the more that they know about the brain, in other words, the less certain anyone is as to where does thought come from. And they have even come up now with the idea uh, of that there is a place of pre-thought. They call it pre-consciousness. I thought you'd like that. They keep doing it. See, everybody, they refuse to admit the inevitable. And it's like, like well, wait a minute. And it almost makes sense. I think it originated in the, with the linguist of trying to explain how language is learned so quickly that the rules of grammar, the structure of rhetoric itself, is just grasped by children with no rhyme or reason. It just happens almost overnight. And then they started, the question then became, well, if that be true, and then how is it that language is expressed, which... They had never dealt with before, and the only answer they had was, well, this obviously comes from thought. And then they've got themselves now lumped in that whole field of cognitive neuroscience. Is well, Yeah, but where does thought come from? So now somebody's come up with the idea, well, there's a place of pre-thought. There's a place, instead of calling it the subconscious, there's a place in which information that the individual needs that is coming from subcortical, subconscious areas that it's coming up, but it needs to be brought to the individual, to the person's conscious attention, then, of course, being facetious, I, I find it always, I say, unbelievable that people with education, people with an IQ above room temperature will fall for this, <laughs> that they decided, somebody came up with the idea that, all right, we can't find a place, nor can we explain, but we certainly cannot find a physical locale wherein thought originates, and so therefore we cannot look at some place in the brain and say, all right, thought starts there.
and then it moves into uh, wherever it is around the occipital. Anyway, the area of the brain where th- where speech originates, we can't trace the two since we can't find where thought originates. Then they th- somebody came up with the idea. Of course, they usually call it consciousness, the conscious thought. Then maybe what's happened is there is an area or else uh, a network of smaller areas working in conjunction that is involved with, and they came up, somebody with this whole new term, pre-consciousness. Not subconsciousness, pre-consciousness, and it's like a waylay station. That is, it's these unconscious, unconscious information. Information is coming into the human organism, you know, that's constantly coming in, but that when some of it comes in that needs conscious attention, then... Perhaps we have made a mistake looking for one spot that suddenly consciousness shows up in the brain and it's ready to talk and say, listen, move your hand from there. Or go over there and move that from the shelf or it's going to fall and it's very expensive. Since they can't find that place, somebody said, wait a minute. What if there's like a staging area? Like off in the wings of a play. And the actors, that is the thoughts, are they're sort of rehearsing. They're grouping themselves together like... This information is concerning, like, is this important enough to bring to the, to, to the front lobe's attention? And I'll be damned if people didn't jump all over it. Like, that's it. That's it. I'm sure it's been around a while, so I'm sure by now. Again, that some graduate student having to come up with his new doctoral thesis has pointed out, by the way, folks, map, is it just me being an undergraduate? Or is it just... Are you people still just stalling off the inevitable? What do you mean, son? Well, what what comes right before this pre-consciousness you're talking about? Where they go, you're in the wrong major. You know? Why don't you change over to animal husbandry? Or what I was going to say, the one, the one possibility that has never been considered, I have never, anyway, as has never been considered, i never heard, I've never read about it, and it has helped me so much, it has explained so much, I wouldn't be talking about, is really, and I'm giving you the way that hit me, is nothing. It is a nothingness. That explains, I wasn't trying to explain that away, but last night, if you recall, I was using the uh, search in the cognitive neuroscience and linguistics for the origin of thought, and then the origin of language. I was just using it as a springboard. It wasn't I was trying to figure it out, but I'm simply pointing out to you that what they consider to be an unanswerable questions, that which they find bewildering by their own admission of how can, as they put it, how can we know so much about the intricacies, physiologically speaking, of the brain? and still have what amounts to, constructively, no insight whatsoever into our own mental workings. How can this be? And, of course, they just mumble, and they come up, well, maybe it's pre-consciousness, maybe it's this. And nobody, nobody ever says, nobody ever thinks, the mind does not work this way, that the reason we can't find anything right before thought, that we just keep making up these, and they're plausible, but you've got to remember, if you've been listening to me and noticing yourself, the mind can believe any goddamn thing. If you don't believe it, you know, walk down the street and look at those buildings they call churches or stockbrokers' offices. Rather than looking for, rather than coming up with what amounts to nothing but very ephemeral 
pseudo-explanations like pre-consciousness. What if there's nothing before it? Now, that's where I left it last night. Uh, I've got to point this out, or I wanted to. When I say that nothingness, and behind every great man is nothingness, behind every great mind is a great nothingness, and if you recall last night, I said that the final step, to me, the, verbally, was behind every great thing. Behind every great thing. And remember, things only exist in man's secondary world. There are no such things at the instinctive level. There are no things to animals. And there are no things to our instinctive self. So, I'm saying behind every great, and for you people on tape, I'm doing hand gestures, serious hand gestures to go along with this. For every, here it comes, thing, behind every great thing is a great nothingness. But, it is a great nothing, or say nothingness, at least as far as the mind can comprehend. <laughs> now, I'm not saying otherwise. If there is something, I don't know what the hell it is. I call it life. But I know this much. I spent my whole life. I know this much. Behind human thought. Mind yours, everybody's. Behind human thought, behind the human mind, is a great... All you got is look. Nothingness. Now, of course, that literally us speaking. When I say literally, notice how I emphasize that can not be literally correct. Which sounds all right, unless you know better. Well, what the hell am I emphasizing that cannot be literally correct? So, nothing would be literally correct. But anyway, any rate, back to, if you don't do this, where well, you going? You can't talk. Based upon the workings of the mind. Uh, not a theory. I leave it as always. Challenge. I challenge you, just look at yourself. You've got enough information. Based upon the workings of the mind. That cannot be true. There is no way, and I'm just... Hoping and assuming when I say it can't be true and I continue to talk, but now you people know what I, how I do that or what I mean by it. Uh, I'm not being funny. I say that behind the human mind, behind human thought, behind everything that the human mind can conceive of, not anything in the physical world, mind you, but anything such as education is a thing, religion is a thing, God is a thing. If you can't touch it, Literally, if you cannot touch it, that no one can touch it, if you can't sit it out here on the table or put it in my hand, it's a thing, is what I mean by it tonight. Behind every great thing, behind everything is nothing. All right, that cannot be true. By any ordinary use of the ordinary mind. I just want you, you know, I'm not being silly, we all understand that there's no way you can't, your mind will not go, yeah, behind everything is nothing. To begin with, you can't conceive of what nothing is. So it can't be true, and yet it is true. How about this? What if in some way I can see it's true, if I just know it's true, just for instance? The mind can't see that it's true. Because the mind is a thing. I was considering since last night, uh, as I said, in as much as it seemed to have got, gotten a handful of you people's good attention last night and did something, uh, there are all sorts of areas. I see it out in life. 
that is a tacit acknowledgement of men's minds regarding the fact that behind thought is nothing. There's a song that seems to be popular playing on the radio. There's always a song like this. But uh, the words, the punchline amounts to, uh, there is a great, there's a great nothingness in my life. Or nothing will ever play. There's a great hole in my life. It's a serious song. There's a great hole in my life because nothing will ever take the place of you. Now, as we all know, all the way from, you don't have to pick on just country music all the way through rock, through poetry of every stripe, through the so-called great literature, uh, 99% of it's been written by men. And what's it about? 99, you're just used to it. 99% of all songs are about what? Well, sex. Then we call it love. And 99% of the 99% is about lost sex. Or the fear that I'm about to lose it. Or I have lost it, and how can I get her back? All right, for years and years, and also bad news, how about this, to bring that back up, that all news is bad news. They do not report news. Nobody's interested in news, not just on the professional media level. People do not discuss gossip unless it's bad news. It's the only thing that interests people. Many, many decades, more than most of you people have been fooling around with it, it struck me, and I was satisfied at the time. But this is why you should never be satisfied. That, well, there is something that men are just made to enjoy bad news. And you look around and you cannot deny it. Or I could not deny it. I didn't have anybody to talk to her and I didn't read about it. I just looked around and it struck me that it was obvious it shit on the bottom of your foot in the barnyard. That you listen to people talk, you pick up a newspaper, you walk past the newsstand, look at the, the headlines of all the magazines, turn on the news, TV, radio, whatever it is, and it's bad news. And you'd be standing at a bar, people smiling, having a drink, and suddenly say, plane crashes, all aboard, feared dead. Here's a guy, and everybody seems to be smiling, da-da-da-da-da. And suddenly somebody goes, wait a minute, turn that up! <laughs> and you're, nobody. And they said, it's on the other side of the world. It's not like the person, you know, my wife could be there. <laughs> it's just, wait, turn that up. And everybody goes, what was it? And they go, it's a plane crash. They said there might be 200 people dead. Killed. And suddenly people sit down their beers and I go, huh. So I thought, well, nobody notices this. Well, what's the explanation? Well, the obvious one is there's something indigenous in man to enjoy bad news. So for a long time, I got something out of that. But I'm telling you, there's always another way to look at it. I have brought it down, or what I'm trying to convey to you for the last two nights, is that you look over your shoulder and there's a nothingness, and I can see... For instance, people, humans loving the idea of bad news, and bad news is in the past, whatever it is. There's no such thing as contemporaneous bad news. If it's contemporaneous, really bad news, it's not bad news to you. It's current pain. Bad news is worrying about the root canal work next week. If you're sitting in the dentist chair right now, and he is, his work is having an effect on you that it normally has on people, that's not bad news. That's a current experience. At any rate, I see the attraction as to the past, and I see people's intrigue, the worldwide continuing interest in bad news, or why a man wants to sing about 
how much I loved that woman, how she broke my heart, how I went back and I begged her to come back. She laughed at me. I tried to forget her. And you think, God damn, the song goes on for four minutes. And that's, that's the only point. It's not like then that finally she went, oh, well, I can't live without you and come back. It's just four minutes of, you know, like a guy trying to stomp on his own dick. And, and you think, well, why did, <laughs> what possesses somebody t- to write a song? Now, this, this, notwithstanding the fact, as I said, to me, it wasn't hard to see that hell, 40 years ago, I'd already accepted the fact that there was something in people, and I could feel it. It wasn't that I, there was just a theory. I could feel that there is an attraction to bad news. I can see it as being nothing over anyone's shoulder. Well, I can't resist, uh, because I wish you people, I'm still encouraging you to do it. Uh, let me point out an interim step that you can keep going. But see, I've got to about narrowed what I'm trying to convey to you. I've about shaved it down to where what I'm talking about almost has no girth, no depth, no gravitas. There's, not, there's almost nothing to it. But after I went from just the understanding, as far as I was concerned, that men, beyond any decision on their part, that there is something built into the human psyche to enjoy hearing bad news. Then it finally came on me because I've never been able to satisfy. Anyway, I began to think of other possibilities. And one was, this is, I brought this up before, but I just want to show you how you can go. So to say that men love bad news, that answers everything. That's like one gigantic turd in the touch. <laughs> just boom. Well, everybody, men love bad news. All right, so you can walk away and go, all right, I see it. Other people don't, but there's no doubt. There's something built into us to love bad news. It's like, boom. Somewhere along the way, I kept, it would come to mind, and I'd look at other possibilities. Then another one came. That, well, that, you know, to me, it's always this, in a sense. And, and I, surely you people do it yourself. If you get interested in anything that humans do, that you find yourself doing, that seems to be useless, it seems to be annoying, it would seem to be the very uh, manifestation of what, it's always been called by people like us being asleep and deluding, etc. And you look at it and you think, it's got to be serving a purpose. It's got to be serving a purpose. So, for instance, bad news. It struck me. People dwelling on it. People wanting to hear bad news. There was another way to look at it. That it was indeed a survival-enhancing uh, function of the brain. That when, it, when the brain didn't have anything else to do. That you're not faced with having to defend yourself. You're not faced with some specific contemporaneous effort to, to survive. You're just doing nothing, and so you start daydreaming. You write songs about bad news. You pick up a newspaper and you read about it. Ah! And you quickly turn over to follow the story. There's a way to look at it, that it is the brain, that it is your mind practicing, <laughs> preparing itself. Now, I mean, I'm not bringing this up as trying to rationalize. It struck me at a very low level that that could be true. Well, it is true. It's not could be true. People do use it. It's, of course, completely overdone because the brain doesn't have anything else to do normally. But I, I just want you to see if I assume I've made it clear that you could look at on this basis that reading about bad news, reading about other people's horrible problems, their sicknesses, their ill fortune, is your brain could be storing away like, well, I remember that. You know, if I ever go out, if I remember I take a flight... And they find out that there was uh, something funny with the uh, one of the flaps on the wing, whatever, and that they attribute that. 
you can read about it. And apparently you look at it and go, well, the people are loving to read about it. The bodies were mangled. 240 people killed. Burned. Two or three people ran from the plane once at Christ, and they were still alive, and they were on fire and screaming. And you think, well, people, people are just some kind of idiots. They just, they just... But there's a way to look at it. Like I said, I didn't have to stretch it when I say a way to look at it. That you read about that, and you read that they about the they decide that it had to do with the, one of the wing flaps. Your brain could fly away like I fly a lot. And next time I fly, as soon as I walk out there, I'm gonna look. I'm just gonna look. Well, I just will. All right. So there, you understand. I have now narrowed it down. That my first understanding, my first view of why do people love bad news. It's just that that's the way men are. And 40 years ago, to me, now it sounds sort of, well, anyway, it doesn't explain much. But 40 years ago, to me, that was a big discovery. Everything that you discover on your own, you, you understand, I'm not here talking about me, I'm not the point. Everything you've discovered on your own, if you'll think back, was a big deal. That everything that you realized, even if now your realization of it, is even richer but I know damn well, unless you've been fooling me all these years, all of you, that you see things on your own and you see it and it just explains at the moment everything. You, my God, how could I have not seen that? And as a corollary, many times you think, my God, nobody's ever noticed that. I've never heard about it. I've never read about it. I've read books. I've read many books. I've had courses in school on this subject and nobody's ever even pointed that out. And that explains more than anything I've ever heard. That's your discovery. Uh, so I started out with just men. There's something men are made to enjoy bad news. I mean, that's it. There's no denying it, and there's still no denying it. Now, might not call it like it now, but they have a natural affinity and an attraction to it. So then it was like as big as the universe that it filled up. If, if this was men, if this was a subject of men and the enjoyment of bad news, then I filled up the whole area with my original understanding that well, men are made to enjoy bad news. So let's assume that that was a 10-pound or 10-gallon bucket. Then that understanding took up 10 gallons worth. Then I narrowed it down. Then I saw, well, it's not just 10 gallons worth of automatic enjoyment of bad news. It's serving a purpose. Not when it's redundant, but it serves a purpose. The hearing about bad news, dwelling on it, Dwelling on your bad news, replaying in your mind about the way that woman treated me, how it broke my heart. And this is not the first time that a woman's treated me that way. And you keep on and on, and we can laugh at it. A person write a song about it, write poetry, but think about this. Now, it may not do him much good from outside observation, but you can look at it on this basis that his brain is continuing to replay this, looking for new information that it might use again, like, I won't let this happen. Next time I'll see it coming. I won't get involved with a woman like that. Or at least maybe if I think about it enough and it does happen, I won't suffer the way I have this time. So let's say now, if you're following my allegory, that I had it down to five gallons. More specific. I was becoming an expert. All right, I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to go through any more degrees of it. I now have it down to where it's almost gossamer. It's wax paper thin. Why do people like bad news? As I said, bad news is the past. Why do people dwell in the past? Because they got no past. <laughs> Don't miss it. Oh, now you got a past physically. 
If you're 40 years old, you got a 40-year-old physical past. But your mind? You don't have a 40-year-old mind, not based upon experience. Of course, don't look to your mind. Don't sit there and look at me and then look up at your mind like, is that true? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts are going to say, well, you finally got me. <laughs> I'm going to make it fast. I say that we dwell on the past, the mind. And I say we. The mind dwells on the past. Remember, the body doesn't dwell on the past. Our instinctive self, as I call it for that kind of ad hoc model of into instinctive self and mental self, the mental self does not live in the past. It doesn't even have a knowledge of the past. All this got is now. That's it. The mind being interested in the past, I see as an attempt to imagine that there's something behind you. Hearing about bad news is that same kind of attempt. I tell you something else I see. This men obviously, humanity, collect instinctively in the packs the same as many other creatures do, but they do it for physical reasons. You know, for a while I kept writing and using the term collective a couple of years ago, and I don't know whether anybody ever wondered why. I say that there is another pack affiliation of man, but it's not instinctive, it's not physical. Of course, we're still here physical, physically together. It is an attempt to mentally be a social creature. To share political ideas, for instance. That people get together, somebody put up a sign on a college campus like, are there anybody, is anybody interested in starting, anybody interested in socialist ideas? Maybe neo-socialist ideas, bring the socialists. Would anyone like to start a socialist, young socialist club? People get together. All right, who wants to... How many country punk music lovers do we have here in college? You know, who'd like to join me? All right, people get together who have, as they call it, a common interest. Now, remember, we're talking about secondary interests, things. Not to get together like, you know, who wants to fuck? Who wants to start a fuck club? Who wants to start a, you know, an eating club? We're talking about a club that the interest is in non-tangible matters. Does anybody catch on what I'm about to say? You know how I see that? Because I already know it's foolishness, as you should too. People do not get together. They don't have democratic, young democratic, young democrat or republican clubs because that means anything. I say to you again, even though people threaten to get in fistfights and say that their whole life revolves around their political or religious beliefs, I say it's not true. I say it's pretense. People know it's not true. That is not what, that's not the, what their life amounts to. And yet they will say, well, it's very important. I love my political ideas, my religious ideas, my social agenda, my social uh, outlook on life is very important. And I, and whether they ever say this or not, they will seek out people to share their opinions. I'm going to tell you why. Another thinner view. They are attempting through socializing centered around things, centered around ideas, is in their conversations, they're attempting. I can see it plain as hell. They're attempting, and nobody understands it as they're sitting there discussing it. They're attempting to throw this imaginary weight over the other person's shoulders like, yeah, there is something to you. <laughs> There's nothing. There's nothing to anybody. And I keep, I've been trying to put that out. Well, I've been trying to slip that in on you one way or the other. 
Oh, hell, maybe it worked. Maybe I should shut up. That's the first time I ever got that kind of reaction from any of you, or as a whole. You know, that makes no sense. You know, it can't be true because we, we look and we say we're somebody. How about this? If you ask somebody, uh, tell me about yourself. What do they tell you? Well, what if you even started off and you just you were staying around a bar or around an office cooler talking to somebody and you just man you go boy i heard a weird i read a weird thing last night i was reading a book and the guy said that we don't have a real self this illusion isn't that weird and the other person probably go, yeah and then you talk for a couple of seconds to the guy and you meet and shake hands and you know i hadn't you just started work here well hey tell me something about yourself what do people tell you about themselves and you know how often i picked on and pointed out that talking about yourself you know, it's not a moral issue. Talking about yourself will keep you from fully ever understanding what's going on. Every time you talk about yourself, you stuck your finger in your eye. You literally have. You have dumbed yourself down, or at least held yourself where you are. And why? And I'm not the first person I've read that. People wrote that several thousand years ago. And, you know, it's ended up out in the public arena and even amongst mystics is the exhortation that, exhortation that we should be humble. That's not it. I give somebody, I give Adam again, allegorically, the credit. If you talk about yourself, what, what are you doing? I say now, what I'm trying to present to you now, I say that you are knowingly, you're pretending otherwise, you and everybody else, but your mind, by talking about itself, is attempting to put some fat on something, to put some weight on something that is not there. The constant reliving of the past in your mind. I'll leave it to all of you, you know, how much you do it, but that goes on constantly. And if you stop and you look at it, which I assume you have, and you think, at first it's irritating. Or for most people, all their life it's irritating. That is, people trying to wake up. Why do I keep doing this? I keep replaying the same thing. I just have a clear blue sky. I'll be out, you know, out for a jog. And suddenly, something that a girl told me 22 years, what the hell, it's been 30 years when she walked out and left me, I'm sure my, she went, well, I've been with a bunch of guys my life, but uh, what the hell am I doing? How many times have I thought that? What's the point? Forget the thing about where well, you like to suffer. Yeah, yeah. Forget to go past. Well, you're trying to uh, learn from the experience so that you won't get in that kind of uh, hurtful situation again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, come on, come on. What else? Why do you keep replaying the past? Remember when I say you, it's our thoughts. You don't do it. Your stomach doesn't do it. Nothing but your thoughts do it. What is it doing? Why does it keep doing it? I say it gives the impression to itself. There's nobody to say otherwise. It puts girth, heft to it. That You've got these pictures, the mind. Remember, this is in your brain. People, I, I don't think you give enough attention to this, the miraculousness. I mean, everybody knows it, but nobody ponders it. There you are out for a run, and you can see a movie. That's not really like a movie. I'll leave it to you. You should do it yourself. You know it's kind of hard to... But it's there. It's just when you stop and you try to watch yourself watching it, that's when it fades out and gets kind of jerky and comes in and out of focus. But there you were running, and out of a clear blue sky, your mind started seeing a house, an apartment where you lived 30 years ago in another city, and you still see her, and you can still see she had on a red skirt and that yellow blouse, and she was staying right there and leaned against the door, and she said, well... You know, I've been to a lot of guys in my life, but... My, 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 my. Don't you see that to the mind, 
that gives the illusion. Except to it, it's real because it's an illusion to start with. So anything it thinks. The, the recollection of this episode, of any episode, it actually, it puts, what should we call it? I assume most of you are getting it. Girth, depth, weight, solidarity. And you keep remembering it over and over and over. Nobody, And it's like the more you remember it, the truer it is, the realer it is. Even though it was painful, it doesn't matter. What the hell does the mind care? <laughs> Uh, it's literally impossible, but I'm going to leave it at this. I'm telling you, I spent two nights on it, giving you my best gift in return for you guys showing up. I'm telling you, if you look over the thought shoulder, there is nothing there. Now, one more time, don't get involved. Well, there's got to be something. Yeah, life then. But I'm telling, I'm telling you, there is nothing. There is nothing of which the mind can conceive. I mean, it's as obvious as hell. Except to the mind. That answers every question in the world. Why you can't find God? Why they can't find the unified theory of everything? Why they can't, why they can't, why they can't locate the origin of thought in the brain, of conscious thought? You know, it's a little bit here, a little bit there. And the more we know, the less we know, the less depth we, we absolutely, we can't see into it. There's none to see into. But the mind, on its own, can never accept that. It's not like I suddenly discovered something that someday the rest of the world is going to discover. Not unless the mind changes drastically. And that's why I say I understand that it can't be true to the mind. Because you tell the mind, there's nothing to you. <laughs> With the mind, if there wasn't something to it, you couldn't hear yourself say it. So right there, you know, it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's why I say it's tissue paper thin. You know, I'm calling it nothingness, but my head is in quotation marks. Does that help? I'm telling you, it's so close to nothingness that I don't know what else to call it. I'm telling you, look over your shoulder. I just look over thought shoulder. There's nothing there. There is nothing there. There is nothing to your mental life. There is no you. Well, I started to say that some of you, I think, already put together. Uh, I dropped off. You asked somebody to describe themselves, their self. They go, well, I'm uh, 42 years old. I'm a little overweight. I smoke too much. Uh, uh, I don't pay enough attention to my children. Uh, I've let opportunities at work slip by. I have not advanced the way I should. What are they saying? Why are they saying this? What, what, is, what does that mean? What are they pointing to? And I, again, I say they, remember, it's the mind. It's nothing but the thoughts that appear in that guy's head that he did not initiate. He did not invite them. He did not go out and buy those thoughts. He didn't get those thoughts out of a book. He didn't find a book of available thoughts like wallpaper and you make your selection. They're just there. And if you ask him, who are you? His thoughts answer. The thoughts in his brain. Because it's still funny, I say his thoughts. They're squatters. And, of course, that's not true, because then you'd have to say that the universe is a squatter in itself. And of course, then you got to think, like the fish, that, what's this funny stuff around me? And somebody says it's water. And the fish, oh, well, that's help. Uh, now, I have greater insight. No, 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 now the fish is asleep. 
The fish has been atomized. The fish just ate the forbidden fruit. The fish would now be conscious. The fish now conceives that that is thought that there's a difference between me. That is the thoughts in here and out there. Your body doesn't think that. Your instinctive self does not feel that there's an environment. Your instinctive self and environment's the same thing. It's only the mind, which is the only reason it can work and manipulate the environment to our advantage to make life survival more survive to make life more survivable. Is the mind does feel apart from the environment, and yet nobody knows how it works, and nobody will admit why don't we know? It's because there's nothing behind it. I'm telling you, every urge. To whatever degree you have it and however you think about it, now it doesn't matter. But uh, the so-called urge to awaken, to seek enlightenment, I said I do not consider, I don't use me as an example except I'm all I've got. Since I did it all on my own and didn't learn it or study it or talk to anybody about it. And I've done it longer than you did. I was starting out one. I'm telling you that everybody that does this is after the same thing. No matter what culture, no matter what Language, no matter what sex, I see it all. And I'm telling you what it is. And I'm telling you that it's almost impossible to see it. That doesn't mean it's not fun. That doesn't mean that you can't have those extraordinary experiences. Because I had a string of experiences. I was already addicted. Before I ever, looking back now, had any depth of understanding as to what was going on. As I said... That was sort of the last ditch stand to me is to find something to occupy my mind for the next 30 or 40 years before I died. And I thought, well, I know what it is. Well, I've already told you this. Once I realized, just face that simple truth, is that as far as I knew, I understood as much about awakening, being awake, being enlightened, etc. I didn't tell anybody, but as far as I'm concerned, I probably understood as much as anybody on the planet alive now. I couldn't conceive, because to me, I understood everything, except then one day I thought, I don't understand a goddamn thing about it. Nothing. That's when it got interesting. I thought, well, I won't have to sit around and, you know, twiddle my toes for 30 years. <laughs> but what do you discover if you go down that path? Which may be why nobody else ever does it. It is quite a surprise when you see it for yourself. Now, I put it that way. It just it kind of sneaks up. But see, I'm giving you. I didn't have any help with this. I've, I've gone ahead and given out a free bean bag. If you, if thoughts, if you look over thoughts' shoulder, and of course you are thoughts, what you call you are thoughts. If you look over your shoulder, I say there's nothing there. All right, there's this much. When you look over the shoulder, there's enough that will make you turn and look. That's all there is. That's why nobody can self-remember. That's why you can't remember the name of Allah, the name of Buddha, or some chant. That's why you cannot still the mind. Because you think, well, be still, mind. As though this you saying, well, be still, mind, that you're two different things. As long as you think that there's something behind the mind, you'll never fully get it. And you know, I'm not trying to bring you down because obviously all of you, by your continued presence, you must enjoy it. There's nothing like it. But I'm telling you, you'll never fully get it until you realize 
as impossible as it is, and I'm not being allegorical, trust me. Think of the depth of who you are, how intelligent all of you are, all the things you know, the fields of interest you have. I'm telling you, it is a piece of tissue paper. And it's just obvious as hell. There's nothing back there. Of course, it's not, you know, what can I say after that? I, I present rhetorically because obviously I can keep saying something. There's nothing to it. And you look, but if you don't know what you're doing, you'll look. And the act of looking makes it feel as though there is some health to this. That's why people think they're doing something. If they undertake like that, they will, I'll always self-observe. I'll remember myself. Or I'll be eternally mindful. You know what it is? They don't look at it this way. You have not accepted that there's me, and then there's my shoulder. I can see it here. And what I've got to do is keep my shoulder in view. But they can call it, I've got to self-remember. I've got to remember some mantra, some sacred word. It's all the same thing, as I point out. You're attempting, or even through meditation, prolonged meditation, that I'm going to still the mind. Well, what are you going to still it with? What kind of hand, or what, what are you going to do to hold down the mind? All you got is the mind, to hold down the mind. And hell, the mind will go along if you go, this is what we'll do. <laughs> Your mind never says no, because it's the one who said that. It's not, it's not like... <laughs> Don't you see? Well, maybe you do. So if you keep looking like, well, let's see, what's the basis of all this? What else? You know, if I could just get a better grip on this, I think I'd really... There's no better grip. Whatever grip you got now is an illusion. <laughs> That's what I like is people that write me or I used to be out making those public speeches and people come up to me very sincerely and I always, you know, I never laughed at them. But they would talk to me about how awake they were. I used to have people come up to me that had been hanging around those... I assume the Gurdjieff, well, they used to be Sufi groups of that, but... The guy would come up to me and say, I enjoyed your lecture and read your books. And uh, he would like confide in me. He'd look around and go, by the way, I don't know which, I'm not exactly sure which number you are, but I'm awakened man number five. <laughs> like, you know, I remember now that they had some sort of listing among some of those groups that, you know, that if you could manifest something, other, if you could read minds or something, you were uh, man number, awake man number two. They'd, they would say, I'm man number five. One guy even told me, he said he planned within the next year to be man number six. So, so it was some sort of correspondence course. And all he... <laughs> but see, there's the neatness. There's the, there's the eternal hobby, unless you go faster than me, which I hope you do. That's why I'm trying to tell you this. Is that people believe, well, I'm working on something. Of course, 99% of people like us, even anything like us, wired up in this. Uh, you keep forgetting, I bet. But they still believe throughout history, and they do right now, they believe that they are working on something outside themselves. Like, oh, I'm working on, I'm trying to be a Sufi. And they believe whatever school it is or whatever teacher is, I have got to, once I understand the Sufi teaching or, you know, guru so-and-so, yogi X is, once I've got this and, I, and I'm getting better, I can now understand most of what he said. I've read most of his lectures. I've done, And they feel as though that there is something out here that once they have that fully in hand, once they have it fully understood, then they will change. There's nothing out there. They're making it up. Everybody's making it up. And of course I say they, the mind. There's no teaching. Forget about the great secret teaching. There's no teaching. <laughs> of course, we're, we're, back to, we're back to the mind always trying to 
flesh up and pretend that there's something behind it when it's not. It's not that there's just a teaching. That became a secret teaching, only a few people. Then that got to be common. That was the dark, hidden secret teaching. That was the great secret. As though, you know, the more adjectives we put, the more health, you know. Doesn't work. There's nothing back there. Nothing. For you people out of town, I missed you. We had a nice turnout. Maybe next year. Next time. Have one for me. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest or just leave us a message.